Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do indeed pray by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us. Through your word, let us be people who have soft hearts and open minds to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open it to Romans chapter 6. Today we're going to be spending time in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 for the second Sunday in a row. And as you turn, let me remind you a little bit about the scope of Romans 5 through 8. We see in Romans 5 through 8 that that God is in the business of remaking people. And the way that he does that is he takes them from the realm that we were all born into, the realm of Adam, our father, the father of humankind, and the sin of Adam, and the consequences of Adam, and he transfers us to the realm of his son, Jesus, with the righteousness of Jesus, and the grace that God gives for the forgiveness of sins, and the new life and eternal life that only Jesus can give. And we saw last week how in Romans 6, the way that he does that is through what we call our union with Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you become supernaturally united to him. And in this way, you receive the benefits of your salvation and your blessing. And so let's remind ourselves of that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll focus more specifically on one aspect of this. Romans 6, starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. If you look carefully at verses 3 and 4, you'll find a very interesting expression. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness 
of life. That is an interesting phrase. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ and have the aspects of his death and resurrection applied to us? This morning we're going to talk about baptism. And as we talk about baptism, throughout history we recognize that different groups have practiced baptism in a variety of ways. And in a church the size of ours, I'm quite certain that many of you come from different traditions that have different practices of baptism. Some of those practices are very casual in their approach to baptism, and others of them are very serious in their approach to baptism. And many are found what you might call in the middle. A drunken man once stumbled upon a baptismal service that was happening on a Sunday afternoon down by the river. And as he sat back and he observed what was happening in the heat of the day, he decided that he too would make his way toward the water. And so he waded out into the water as the preacher was talking, this little old country preacher, and he came up right alongside the preacher, and the preacher was a little bit startled to see him there. He'd never seen this man before and did not at that point invite anybody into the water. And so he looked at him and he says, Mister, are you ready to find Jesus? And the drunk looks back at the preacher and he said, Yes, preacher, I sure am. So the minister dunks the fellow under the water. And he pulls him back up and he says, have you found Jesus? And the drunk man said, no, I didn't. And so the preacher dunks him under the water and he holds him there for quite a bit longer. And he pulls him back up again. And he said, brother, have you found Jesus? And the drunk man looks at the preacher and he said, no, I I, I haven't, reverend. I haven't found him. And so the preacher starts to get frustrated. He holds the man under the water for a full 30 seconds. And exacerbated, he pulls him back up and he said, man, have you found Jesus? To which the drunk replied, are you sure this is where he fell in? (laughs) Some. Some people take baptism so casually as this is just sort of anybody comes and if they want to find Jesus, this is where you could find him. You find him in the water. Let's look for him there. Others, by the nature of their context or their understanding, are forced to take it much, much more seriously than that. I don't know if you realize, but just a little over two weeks ago, the nation of Nepal made it illegal to convert to Christianity. They're now one of over 20 nations in which it is illegal to convert to Christianity. And as is the case in most contexts around the world, the outward sign of your conversion to Christianity is baptism. In Nepal today, if one is converted from Islam to Christianity or Hinduism, which is the predominant, division, the predominant religion to Christianity, they will most likely lose their family. They'll be fined some hundreds of dollars and they could spend up to three to four years in prison. All for this baptism. Today we're going to talk about baptism. And as we do, we ask the question very simply... Baptism, what is baptism? (laughs) What is it? Well, baptism is the public declaration of our faith in Jesus by being immersed in water 
to symbolize our union with him through faith. It's the public declaration of, of faith in Jesus, that we're united with him, and this is symbolized as we're immersed in water and brought up through faith. And let's break that down a little bit. The Bible, in the Bible, we see two commands of Jesus for Christians to remember the core work of the gospel, and we call them the ordinances. We partook of one of them just a couple of moments ago, the Lord's Supper. And alongside the Lord's Supper, we see baptism. The ordinances are visible signs of spiritual realities, visible, visible symbols of what's happening spiritually. Because we know that the life of faith is one that has many unseen elements to it, doesn't it? Faith itself is internal and unseen. And so Jesus commands his followers to take what is internal and unseen and make it external and visible in some very specific ways. And baptism does just that, as it reminds us of what Jesus did in the gospel, as it encourages us to continue to live faithfully, and as we see then a public profession or witness of all the other people who are Christ followers as well in the Lord's Supper, and in baptism. And so why do we baptize people? Why, why do today we continue to do this? Well, I think, think of at least three reasons. The first is found in the very fact that we want to be obedient to God. If you remember in Matthew chapter 28, you might want to turn there, a very well-known command of Jesus, which we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus is nearing the end of his days on earth, and he tells his disciples something very specific. And you, you all know that if you know you're reaching the end, those last words tend to carry with them an even greater level of urgency and importance, don't they? I'm leaving soon. I'm going to tell you the things that you need to know and you need to do before I go. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. It says that Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus' some of his last words to his disciples are to go make more disciples. <laughs> What are you going to do next? Go make more disciples. And one of the ways that you do that is through baptizing them. So if that's a command of Jesus, then this is not some sort of casual or optional practice for Christians, is it? Christians actually, in obedience to God, pursue being baptized as a public recognition of their faith, of the internal realities that Jesus does in them as he forgives them of their sins. Another reason why we baptize people is to follow the example of Jesus himself. You might remember in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, the perfect son of God, the one who is holy in all of his ways, comes to a man named John the baptizer and asks to be baptized. And John looks at him and he says, I know who you are. 
I don't think this is a very good idea. And Jesus responds by saying that he does this to fulfill all righteousness. The father announces his pleasure with the son, and we have an example to follow. The third reason that we baptize is because baptism as a practice points to a unity within the family of God. It points to a unity within Christianity and local churches specifically. And Ephesians chapter 4 really hits this. We'll, we'll have it up on the screen there in a minute. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so the Christian responds to Christ that he's unified with Christ and a commitment to Christ is expressed through baptism. But a commitment to each other is also expressed through baptism. That we all have this mutual commitment to one hope. What is that one hope? It's the hope of eternal life through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. That hope is the hope of the gospel. That hope is the hope that we can be in a right relationship with God forever. And how is that gospel most precisely expressed? Well, that's where we turn back to Romans chapter 6, our text for today. And when we look at Romans 6, we really start to get an answer to the question of what happens when a person is baptized. As we saw last week, Romans 6 is all about our union with Christ. And I don't often say this to you, but if you missed that sermon last week, I would encourage you to go back to the website and to listen to it because our union with Christ is a fundamental, it's a foundational block of our salvation with God. And it's so often overlooked. Through being mysteriously and supernaturally united to Jesus, you receive all the benefits of your salvation and all the blessings of God. And so I'd encourage you to remind yourself of that. Last week, we thought together about what, it is, what does it mean if two separate entities are brought together and united? And how being united in that type of way is some of the strongest bond that can be expressed in terms of human relationship. When two people are united, there is a sense in which mutual participation occurs. And... As a result, mutual benefits and mutual consequences. You know this to be true, those of you who are married, you're united to your spouse. Mutual participation occurs and mutual benefits and mutual consequences. When we look carefully at the words of Romans 6, we see how baptism expresses this 
most pointedly. Look with me again. We're going to read it just one more time. Romans chapter 6, verses, just verses 1 to 5. Think carefully about the words that Paul is writing. He says, what shall we say then in verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you're asking the question right now, how, how, can I die, how have I died to sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Through our union with Christ, which happens by faith, you are united with him in that you die with Christ and you rise with Christ. Our old self, the self that is a slave to sin, the self that just wants to live for pleasure, the self that is numb to God, the self that is simply out for me and me alone, that person is dead. I died with Christ because I'm united with him. And a new person is born. It's born again. It rises from the grave just as Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. This person is dead to my sinful ways. This person is no longer enslaved by the sin that I had to obey, but I'm alive to God and to his ways. I have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of flesh and a desire to follow the Lord with my life. When two people are united, there's a sense of mutual participation, mutual benefit, and mutual consequence. Baptism symbolizes mutual participation and its benefits and consequences. Baptism symbolizes the mysterious union that you have with Jesus. When you go under the water, it says that my old self is dead and buried. When you rise up out of the water, it symbolizes the reality that you are resurrected to new life. Death, burial, and resurrection. This is the core of the gospel, isn't it? Baptism doesn't accomplish this as an action. It doesn't save us, but it is a visible sign of the spiritual reality that saves us through faith in Jesus. It points us to the truth of the gospel. And so with this understanding of Romans 6, when you look very carefully at the words of chapters one through, or verses 1 through 5, and that baptism as a sign of death, burial, and resurrection, now all the practical questions about baptism start to fall into place. And we can talk about some of those practical implications. I think one of the obvious questions that comes is, well, when should a person be baptized? 
The Bible gives no specific indication of when a person should be baptized except for one consistent example that is shown throughout the entire New Testament. And that is a person should be baptized after they come to faith in Jesus. And we see this in a number of places. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Those who received the word were baptized. It happened after they came to faith. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says, When they believed, they were baptized. Acts chapter 10, verse 47 and 48, Peter commanded those who had believed and received the Holy Spirit to be baptized. Now, baptism rightfully happens after you come to faith in Jesus. We regularly get calls here at the church in which people who are new parents and they want to do right by their young babies call us and say, hey, I'm calling because I want to get my baby done. And, and sometimes they have language to go with that to say, I want to get my baby that thing that you guys do or, or I want to get my baby baptized, they might say. And we offer to meet with them and talk about the fact that we don't baptize babies because we see the New Testament example being baptism coming after faith. But we do dedicate children and parents to the Lord. We do say we want God's blessing on this child and on this family, and we know that that blessing will come as the parents raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But baptism is done after belief. Now, some of us here today come out of a Catholic background. And in the Catholic background, we were baptized as infants. And the Catholic Church teaches some, some things about baptism very differently than most Protestant churches do. Most notably, in the Catholic context, they focus on the act of baptism itself as washing away original sin and regenerating a person to new life, even if they don't know it yet. And we could read a variety of statements uh, from Catholic dogma to tease this out for you, but, and I have read them this week, but I'll give you just one as an example uh, from the Vatican, so, so you know that I'm not making this up. Article 1263 on the baptism of infants reads this. In the Catholic Church, by baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. In those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry to, into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. But a couple weeks ago, we saw in very clearly Romans chapter 5 that no action saves us, no good deed saves us, no ceremony saves us. How are we brought into a right relationship with God? How are we justified and forgiven before God? Through faith. And so you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 6. Just look back at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory 
of God. So faith is the predominant New Testament push for justification before God, for access to the grace of God, and for peace with God. Others of us, like myself, grew up in a Protestant context that baptizes infants as well. And there's a variety of teachings from Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans along these lines. And although we're happy to call so many people in those denominations brothers and sisters in Christ, as they understand and preach the gospel, we part ways on this particular issue of baptism. Some will teach that baptism is equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament. That as circumcision was a sign that you were part of the covenant community of God, so too is baptism a New Testament sign that you are part of the covenant community of God. And in some ways, there's some similarities because it is the entry point into this covenant community of God But the nature of the covenant and the nature of the community are very different between Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, you can be part of the covenant community of God by external standards. There's an external covenant, i.e., you could be born Jewish and be part of the covenant community. If you weren't Jewish, you could be circumcised and be part of the covenant community. But in the New Testament... There's a new covenant that God has, a new set of promises that God has with his people. And as part of this new set of promises, we see that it's not an external reality that shows you're part of the covenant. It's actually an internal reality. It's faith, faith in Jesus. And that faith is then externally demonstrated by those who have faith, namely people who have believed There's a different covenant and a different community, and it comes through faith. Colossians chapter 2 shows us this language. It shows us language that's very similar to the language of Romans chapter 6. It says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is to say that in Jesus you're circumcised without hands. What does that mean? It means that you're not physically circumcised as part of the covenant. It means that your heart is circumcised as part of the covenant, that you are tender and soft of heart to receive the things of God. And this happens by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Sounds similar to Romans 6. In which you are also now raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so what are, we, what are we getting to here? In baptism, we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. In baptism, we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus and that he belongs to us. Here are some other practical considerations for you. How should we be baptized and how should we baptize? By what mode? The example that the Bible gives of baptism is that of immersion or being fully put under the water as the way that people are baptized. And as a Baptist church, we follow the historical practice of this. And there's a variety of reasons that we do. 
Number one, the word for baptism in the Greek New Testament, baptizo, literally means to immerse, to dunk, to dip. Number two, we see that John's baptism, the practice of baptism early in the New Testament, is in the Jordan River. It's not near the Jordan River where they're going to pour water. It's not next to the Jordan River. And when Jesus goes to be baptized in Mark chapter 1, it says that he came up out of the water. (laughs) That's continued in Acts. Acts chapter 8, Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch on the road. He explains to him the prophecy of Isaiah, which points to Jesus. And as such, the eunuch says, I want to be baptized too. And they saw it fit to wait until they came up upon some water to, be that, to do that baptism. They most likely had water in the thing that they could have poured or sprinkled with. But they came up on the water. And then it says that they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. So that's the New Testament example of baptism. But I think of equal or even greater reports than that is the fact that if the ordinances are physical symbols of spiritual realities, then we have to ask the question, what does the specific practice of baptism symbolize? And Romans chapter 6 tells us it symbolizes death and resurrection. (laughs) That when you go under the water, your old self is symbolized as being dead. When you come out of the water, you're raised to new life as you were with your faith in Christ, and that is the symbol of the gospel applied to you. But this symbol isn't present in the other modes of baptism. It's not really present when you pour water over somebody and, or you sprinkle water over somebody. Now, there's other symbols that are present there, right? You could say this is the washing away of sin or this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but they simply aren't attached to baptism the way that our union with Christ and our participation with him is attached to baptism in Romans 6 and Colossians 2. And so let me pause here for a second and just make a pastoral comment. (laughs) I know in a church like ours, we come from many different backgrounds and traditions. And I know that in a church like ours, we have a growing sense of commitment together to seek faithfulness to Jesus. Part of the marker of a healthy church is an increased seriousness of commitment. And we see that in our church. We see that in the ways that you guys are participating in a variety of the small groups and classes that we have. We see that in the fact that the membership numbers over the last couple years have really increased significantly because people want to commit to the Lord and commit to each other. And that's the sign of sort of healthy, one of the signs of healthy growth. And so if you're here today uh, and you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you as your pastor to be rebaptized as a believer because this most accurately depicts how the Bible sets forth the practice and it allows you to publicly profess your faith after you came to faith. Not to profess somebody else's faith or the choice of your family to have you baptized, but to say to the world, I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. This is my faith in him. I myself was convicted of this when I was 18 years old. I grew up in a Lutheran church. I was baptized as a baby along with my brother. 
And I thought to myself, as I continued to grow and continued to understand the ways of the Lord even more, I thought to myself, I was baptized already. <laughs> I don't need to be baptized again. I checked that box. And really what was happening in my own life was I was prideful <laughs> in some ways. I, I thought to myself, I already did that. I don't want to do it again. I met the requirement, not a disposition of how can I most accurately please God, but I met the requirement. And, and besides, baptism is something that's for new Christians, but I'm not a new Christian. And I don't want people to think of me like a new Christian because they might think less of me then. But the more I read the New Testament, the more I began to understand the nature of ordinances and how symbols point to spiritual realities, I became convinced and convicted that I needed to be baptized as a believer to profess my faith publicly. We have others in our church who have been baptized as a believer, but perhaps by a different mode of baptism, like pouring or sprinkling. And generally, I'm, I'm less concerned here because in your context, your baptism followed belief, which I think is the biggest point, <laughs> and you were doing what you were taught to do by way of how that baptism was administered. But I would ask you to consider being baptized by immersion and joining the church in commitment to one another in this historic practice, even though that might be a prideful sting or it might feel like you're checking a box or, or you might feel like it invalidates your previous experience. Because I would challenge you on what baptism is actually symbolizing. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And consider being immersed to show that accordingly. I think of a woman that came to the church and wanted to become a member of the church because she was just excited about what God was doing here and excited about you. Excited about, I told her you guys weren't that great, but no, I didn't even talk to her. It was Pastor Rick. He told her you weren't that great. But, but she thought otherwise, and so she wanted to be, she wanted to be part of this group, and, and she had been baptized, I don't remember, by another mode or, or maybe as an infant. And when baptism by immersion came up in the conversation, and she was shown the biblical example, her response was, I think, something that we can all look to as a model. It was something like this. She said, I want to be a part of this people. <laughs> and commit myself to the Lord and to them, and, and I want to proclaim my faith in Christ in all the areas of my life. And so if you are asking if I want to take the opportunity to proclaim my faith in Christ publicly to this group of people by being baptized, then I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take the opportunity because I want to continue to grow in this way. In baptism, we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus and that he belongs to us. When a lady gets married, she puts on a ring. The ring doesn't make her married. She could be married without a ring, but just like you could be saved without being baptized. And if, if you hear nothing else, hear this, baptism doesn't save you. <laughs> there are churches that teach that. 
Bible teaches that faith in Jesus saves you. But baptism doesn't save you any more than a ring makes you married. This ring, what it does do for those who are married is it serves as a sign that she is married. And so many times you'll see two people talking and you'll see the guy's eyes start to wander. And they start going south. And they're looking toward the left hand to see if this woman is spoken for. Is she wearing a ring? And I'm certain that any wife who refuses to wear her wedding ring would be an insult to any husband. I mean, I don't let Amy walk down the driveway without her wedding ring on. Because it's a sign, it's a symbol of something important. The ring is more than just jewelry. It's a piece of jewelry that represents an institution. It represents a covenant. It represents a union. <laughs> Baptism is an action, yes, but it's more than just an action. It's a sign that represents a covenant. It represents a union between you and Jesus. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. And if you've never been baptized, then I would encourage you, friends, follow the Lord in this step of obedience and proclaim that you belong to him, that he belongs to you. We'll give you an opportunity to do that. We have over 22 people being baptized at Old North this month already. Um, it's going to be a great number of weeks of celebration as we hear how these people have put their faith in Christ. If you want to be baptized or even start the conversation about it, we included in the compass today this little card that very simply has your contact information and says, yes, I want to be baptized. And you can fill that out today and you can drop it off at the Welcome Center on your way out. In baptism, we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. I think of the missionaries who for many years have worked in Athens, Greece. Athens is part of the refugee highway in Europe. It's people of the world come and they pass through Greece looking for a better life. And in May 2006, one of the missionaries in Athens reported what happened to an Iranian man identified simply by the letter M. In 2003, M, M had everything that he knew be destroyed by an earthquake that measured 7.45 in the Richter scale. He was tortured by the question of how and why this could happen to him. And so he went to live with his relatives in Afghanistan. And he was married, he had a daughter, but he was still filled with despair. Leaving his family behind, M headed west and ended up in Athens, Greece, staying with more of his relatives. And even though he and his family were Muslims, M became interested in Christianity, finding himself strangely moved by seeing all the crosses of the Orthodox churches peppering the skyline of Athens. And so he was given a Bible and he started to read it. Since his relatives forbade such a thing, M would stay up late at night after his uncles went to bed, reading the Bible with just a little flashlight. And he did this for two years. 
after reading for two years, M finally realized that God was calling him to be born again. And so he contacted a local refugee ministry center. He declared his faith in Jesus Christ, and he began asking for more information. And then on Sunday, May 7th, 2006, M set his alarm for 6 a.m. because he wanted to read his Bible and pray early that morning because that was the day that he was going to be baptized. But his cousin found out about his impending baptism. And he woke up early that day, boiled a pot of water, and while M was still sleeping in his bed, he dumped the pot of water all over him to try to prevent him from being baptized. He scalded both thighs and his arms with significant burns. But M would not be deterred. He came to his baptism anyway. He stood before all of the people who were gathered, burns on his arms and his legs clearly visible, and he declared, no matter what they do to me, I will love Jesus. And after the baptism, M said that he felt like standing in the center of the city of Athens and shouting to everybody, I belong to Christ. And that's what he did do. He was baptized. Jesus gave everything for him, and so he was asked to display his faith in him. In baptism, we declare to the world, we belong to Jesus, and he belongs to us. May our practice of baptism say just that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a clear and visible picture of a mysterious and incredible spiritual reality. That you love us so much, that you give us grace. That when we trust in your son, he is united to us. And though we experience the consequences of death to the old self, we experience the incredible benefit of new life found in him. We worship you in this. We look forward to more proclamations of this. And we ask, Lord, that you would even save more among us today for the sake of your glory. Amen.